2: hey it's hillary frank creator and executive producer of this show it is almost mother's day you guys and it can be hard to come up with the perfect gift for a mom but here at the longest shortest time we've got just the thing we put together a special Mother's Day bundle with our mom tattoos designed by tattoo artist, Jesse Hopeless, our dino punch pins drawn by New Yorker cartoonist, Emily Flake, and a weird parenting wins book written and illustrated by me. I even signed the book just for you or your mom. So stop by our store at podswag.com slash long short and order a Mother's Day gift pack for the mom in your life. We're running a deal on this bundle until Mother's Day. That is May 12th. So yeah, act fast. Now on to the show with our host, Andrea Salenzi.
3: Quick note before our show. We're going to be talking about the circumstances that led to ending a wanted pregnancy. Our guest had an abortion at 29 weeks. As much as this is a story about abortion, this is also a story about losing a child. If that's a sensitive subject for you, we wanted you to keep that in mind before you listen.
4: This past weekend, at a rally in Green Bay, Wisconsin, President Donald Trump talked about a procedure he refers to as extreme late-term abortion. A graphic and wholly inaccurate made-up procedure.
1: The baby is born. The mother meets with the doctor. They take care of the baby. They wrap the baby beautifully. And then the doctor and the mother determine whether or not they will execute the baby. I don't think so.
4: This is a false claim. We don't execute healthy newborns in America. So as I brace myself to hear this false narrative about abortion over and over until November 2020, I've also been wondering about what really happens? I know some things about late-term abortions, like they are incredibly rare and usually sought due to medical complications. But the perspective that always seems to get left out when we talk about late-term abortion in the news and in
3: politics is the mothers. Sure. Hi, I'm, uh, I'm Margot, and I teach at the University of Michigan. Um, I'm, am I 38?
4: Margot's spacing on her age right now. She has two really young kids. What year is it? But here's how she describes her family. I have two living kids, one dead one. Because five years ago,
3: Margot had a late-term abortion. Most people, when they hear about what kinds of situations lead people to have abortions at this point in pregnancy, they don't want to pass a law about it. They just want to give you a hug. Because how awful, how sad. This is The Longest, Shortest
4: Time. I'm Andrea Salenzi. Late-term abortions make up less than 1% of all abortions. There are laws in 44 states, limiting when and how they happen. In most, the cutoff is 20 weeks, or 24 weeks, viability. Today on the show, Margot Finn tells us about getting hers at 29 weeks, even though we're discussing abortion. As a vocabulary choice, we're going to be imitating how Margot talks about this. Margot doesn't say embryo or fetus. She says baby, baby she lost a child. And it changed her. It recalibrated her scales of joy and sadness, how she thinks about life and death. Her abortion turned her into a parent, even though her living kids were still a few years away. When Margot and her husband decided they wanted to be parents, plan A was adoption.
3: The only reason that we had been thinking about adoption is because we're sort of the kind of upper middle class people who are squeamish about overpopulation. And Margot didn't want to get pregnant. I knew that this was a a difficult and often risky physical condition that is technically avoidable. And if I could avoid it, I, I wanted to.
4: Especially because that year their close friend had gotten pregnant and then had a uterine rupture. The friend lost her baby, lost her uterus, nearly died. But since Margot still had a uterus, and her hypothetical letter to an adoption agency mostly mentioned dreading morning sickness under reasons to adopt, Margot worried her way into plan B, get pregnant. And once that seemed like it would solidly be her path, she was too freaked out to even say it out loud. She just kind of closed her eyes, stopped taking birth
3: control. I was terrified, right? I Like, I wanted kids, but I didn't want to be pregnant. And a friend of ours had just nearly died, and her baby had died. And, like, and so this is the context in which we deci- I decide, independently, that I'm going to pull the goalie. When she finally told her husband, he was down. They started their worrying together. Yeah, yeah, we're not getting any younger, and it turns out terrible things happen. So let's find out what terrible thing is going to happen to us. And you, already, you know what terrible thing happened to us, but I will tell you. Once Margot got pregnant, she
4: started diving into the statistics of those terrible things. I found a lot of them are really rare, like a uterine rupture, 1 in 12,000 chance. So Margot focused her worry on the more likely thing, miscarriage.
3: You know, you go to the grocery store and you walk around thinking, are you, are you one of the, you know, have you had one of the 1 in 4 or 1 in 5 pregnancies at end? At nine weeks, when the miscarriage risk had dropped into single, not double
4: digits, Margot let some of her worry be replaced by excitement. She started a pregnancy journal. In her journal, the letters all started, Dear Future Kid. In one, Margot told Future Kid about the wildflowers she saw on a bike ride that day, how excited she was to tell Future Kid all the different flower names, and to show Future Kid how to make snapdragons open like mouths. Then, at 18 weeks, with nine letters in the journal... Margo went in
3: for her first anatomy scan. So the scan was apparently pretty normal, but a doctor came in at the end, and he said that that the ventricles in my baby's brain were measuring on the upper end of normal. In your brain, there are these little spaces where spinal fluid flows.
4: And the left ventricle of her baby's brain was measuring too large. That's sometimes a sign of problems that can develop late in a pregnancy. But again,
3: not abnormal, just upper end. It was still within normal, so technically they didn't have to ask us to come back. They could have just said, like, oh, well, okay, this maybe looks a little funky to us, but probably it's nothing. But he said he had looked at it long enough and felt like, okay, look, if I'm looking at this long enough, I should, you know, we'll just have them come back in in four weeks. We'll be able to see a lot more. Probably it's nothing. What kind of a worrier are you? It's hard for me to replicate now because I'm a different person now, (laughs) and I worry differently. Back in 2014... She was the kind of warrior who needed the stats. So there's a 95% chance this is nothing. And I said, okay, and in the 5% chance that it's something, what does that something look like? So I'm not the kind of warrior who says 95% chance of it's nothing, fine. You know, okay, good. I'm not going to think about it. I wanted to know what the 5% chance was. And he said, well, you know, in that case, you know, maybe, maybe the kid will need a little extra help in school, something like that. And, I, and then I thought, okay, that's fine. I can handle that.
4: Margot got back to writing letters. The letters in her pregnancy journal were no longer to future kid, but now to future daughter. Margot and her husband made up a secret name for her that only they know. Margot started memorizing lyrics to songs that she thought might make pretty lullabies. By 22 weeks, she'd written 13 letters for future daughter, and she headed into her next ultrasound alone.
3: I thought that this was going to be a quick in and out, they were going to say, oh, yeah, you're in the 95%. It's nothing. <laughs> uh, and I was going to go meet a friend for lunch. And instead, I'm laying there on the table, and it's not a quick in and out appointment. But I still don't grasp the significance of that. I'm texting my friend being like, I don't know how long it's going to take me to get out of here. I don't know. I, we should just cancel. I'll see you later. You know, like upset that I have to cancel my lunch plans before a doctor comes into the room. And then, you know, and anybody who's ever had a doctor tell you bad news, it's like you, you see their face.
4: Margot's doctor specialized in high-risk maternal fetal medicine and explained there was something wrong with her baby's brain. Fetal brain development really kicks into gear around 20 weeks. It's when those folds get made. So at 22 weeks, there wasn't enough brain developed to be sure it was developing abnormally. And since Margot worries in a way that seeks information, she started taking it all in. Terms like ventriculomegaly, big ventricles, And learning about parts of the brain, like... The caveum septum pellucidum. And the things that concerned her doctors in the ultrasound. They saw a bright line. They didn't know what that meant. Marga was heading down the path of learning as much as she could about what was going on. Percentages. Likely outcomes. But there was this other path she hadn't considered yet. What if this can't be solved? What if her baby's terminally ill? The doctors started to explain abortion laws in Michigan. Where she
3: lives. And it really wasn't anything except the idea that some people would have an abortion in light of this information. Like, that helped me understand what was going on in a way that, that nothing else they were saying could. In Michigan, there's a 24-hour waiting period before you can have an abortion. So Margot
4: signed the necessary papers that day, just in case any of the new tests they were starting came back with a clear and lethal prognosis. The doctors asked if they could do an amniocentesis. It's when they take a sample of amniotic fluid using a hollowed needle inserted into the uterus. But they could only do it if Margot wasn't doing anything strenuous that day. And life being life, at the time, she had a friend dying of cancer.
3: She'd promised to walk her dog. And I was like, it's a pit bull. And they were like, ah, I don't think. And I was like, no, it's, it's an old, old pit bull. She's slow. It's fine. <laughs> right?
4: They did the amnio. They met with a genetic counselor. They scheduled an MRI. And
3: then I went and walked my friend's dog. Like, that's, that's how that day went. And then, like, cried my eyes out for as many hours as were available. Oh, and that was, yeah, that's right. That was Halloween. It was Halloween. <laughs> because my husband went home that night and handed out candy with tears streaming down his face and all of the darling children in costumes coming to our house. And also, you know, for context, my husband is a very tall man with long hair and a big beard. And he's kind of imposing. He's deeply kind, but he's not nice. So um, to see this bear of a man like sobbing while he, while he hands out Halloween candy, it's, just, it's still like it, it, it's one of these moments in the midst of great pain. It was really funny. It is still really funny.
4: We'll be right back.
0: Say advertisement. Advertisement. Good job. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. Human nature can get a little messy, but nature
1: nature is powerful enough to save us from ourselves. Seventh-generation laundry detergent lifts away tough stains with a 97% bio-based formula for when you think whipping up yellow curry chicken in white pants is a great idea, total not speaking from experience. Let nature do its thing so you can feel confident doing yours. That's the power of 7th Generation. Find 7th Generation laundry detergent and fresh lavender and other scents at 7thGeneration.com.
4: And we're back. Margot Finn is our guest today, and she's bravely telling us the story of her first pregnancy, which ended in an abortion. Where we left off, she was 22 weeks pregnant. So pregnant, she'd ordered prenatal workout DVDs, gotten her parental leave approved. But now, baby showers on hold, they'd started down an extensive diagnostic process with her medical team. They did a microarray, a grid of her child's DNA, to look for abnormalities. Nothing definitive. They looked for infections— wasn't that. Their genetics counselor had explained that 24 weeks is the legal limit for abortions in Michigan. And now that they were there, they still didn't know enough.
3: The best estimate they could give us at that point, you know, is that there was a 70 percent chance our baby would be basically OK. You know, maybe some developmental delays, maybe some cognitive impairment, but but a good life. And to, to end a pregnancy with a 70 percent chance, you could still have a good life. I, you know, I would absolutely support somebody's right to do that, but I, I couldn't, or I'm glad, ah, gosh, I'm glad I didn't have to.
4: Margot didn't have to because she and her husband had the financial ability to travel out of state, pay out of pocket for an even later term abortion. Her team had referred patients in the past to a clinic in Boulder, Colorado, one of the only clinics in the U.S. that do
3: abortions after 24 weeks. I knew that if We got a terrible diagnosis further down the line, I still had options.
4: Margot described this time as Schrodinger's pregnancy. The test would either lead them to the best news ever or the worst. One of the conditions they were worried about was one that had come up fairly early on and saw that bright red line: lysencephaly. Lysencephaly happens in one out of every 84,000 pregnancies. In one of their more optimistic appointments, Margot and her husband had met with a pediatric neurologist, someone who works with kids who have brain disorders, someone she thought might be working with her kid. They were going over treatment plans and therapies for different diagnoses, and she remembers asking him.
3: What about lisencephal? And he said, oh, well, no parent would consider that a good outcome.
4: At the time, Margot was losing her friend with the old pit bull to cancer, and she was reading the book Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. And there's a scene in the book that really stuck with her. It's a daughter talking to her father about the end of his life. And she asks him, what's so important that if you couldn't do that thing,
3: you wouldn't want to live? How will I know when to discontinue your care? He was like a really literate, well-read guy. And she expected things like, well, if I can't do the crossword or if I can't read or if I can't, you know. And instead it was like, if I can't enjoy chocolate ice cream. And she was like, oh, that's a different bar. But okay, if that's what we're talking about, then that's what we're talking about, you know? If, like, the ability to enjoy chocolate ice cream is enough of a capacity to continue, you know, in spite of some kinds of barriers, okay, that's good to know. Margot started to realize that her line was different. Chocolate ice cream wouldn't be enough for her. If I couldn't communicate with people in some way, I don't think I would want to continue living. If I couldn't know that I'm loved— if I couldn't express that I love people, you know, these, like, these are pretty basic f- for me. By 28 weeks, Margot
4: had written her daughter six more letters in her pregnancy journal. That week, using a fetal MRI, they diagnosed her daughter with lysencephaly, a seizure disorder
3: often poorly managed by medication. So you're kind of always chasing some way to, to make these seizures stop. The painful seizures would arrest or
4: even reverse her daughter's cognitive development. They could expect her to live for two to six years while suffering from chronic respiratory infections and intermittent choking
3: on her own saliva. So there's a lot of rushing to the hospital because your baby is choking and you can't do anything to stop it. There's a chance her daughter
4: might be able to smile socially or track motion with her eyes. But Marga was told her case was moderate to severe, especially because the symptoms had presented so early. Her daughter would die of pneumonia or choking or complications during one of the many surgeries she'd need just to be alive. I had
3: to think about whether and when it was okay to to prolong her suffering.
4: Did being pregnant feel different after you guys decided you weren't keeping the baby?
3: Oh, that's a good question. Um, I can't say that I ever loved being pregnant, but... I was always going to be awkward and uncomfortable about having pregnancy conversations with strangers. It's just that afterwards they were going to be awkward and uncomfortable because I'd be crying. <laughs> I, uh, But it's um, – yeah, I mean it was sort of a sacred time to be pregnant with a baby that I was never going to get to meet. Okay, so – now we're going
4: to get into something that once Margot started describing to me, made me realize I'd never heard it before, anywhere. So here it is what's really involved in getting a late term abortion. First, you have to book your own appointment. Then, your medical team sends over the paperwork. The clinic Margot chose in Boulder, Colorado is run by Dr. William Hearn, who's been doing abortions since 1973. She called on a Friday. And they asked her to be there on a Monday. It was almost Christmas.
3: Well, so there's like bulletproof glass and all these privacy fences and you can't bring a phone in and you have to leave your phone at the door. How much did it cost? Uh, $12,500 for the procedure. And I, I don't know what the cost of, the, you know, the plane tickets and the hotel and the rental car where it was, you know, low five figures. Then they'll make sure they can talk to you alone,
4: separate you from your partner.
3: Because they needed to make sure that I was there of my own volition. They'll confirm your diagnosis, but not care about it too much. They were there to give me the medical care that I was seeking. And they were gonna do it as competently and with as much care and respect for me as possible. But the diagnosis was somebody else's business, wasn't their business. They'll explain it's a four-day procedure. There's two things that happen, one is they give you a shot to stop your baby's heart. And the second is that they insert a couple of sticks of what are called laminaria, which is made of seaweed and are an expanding stick um, into your cervix to start slowly opening your cervix so that you can deliver your baby. The sticks take three days, and then they induce delivery.
4: Margot's doctors explained that the risk of complication during a procedure like this was one in ten thousand. Margot was having a hard time putting that number into scale. Remember, listen, Cephaly, that was a one in eighty four thousand risk.
3: I know that one in ten thousand is not something to be worried about. Like I, I know that that's not something that is productive to be afraid is uh, of happening. And yet, how can I? How can I not? Right? I had just been the one. I didn't. Who who was going to tell me I wasn't going to be the one again?
4: Then you go back to the building entrance, where they've been keeping your phone to answer a call from your credit card company authorizing a large sudden payment.
3: Oh, and they had to do a blood test or something and in some part of it like they asked if I drank and I said no, right? Like like aghast. <laughs> The logic of it still, it's like, I you don't, you don't know, uh, people call this magical thinking, right? Like, of course I don't drink. What would that do to my, ba- my, my baby that I'm at an abortion clinic to end this pregnancy? And it's like, how dare you ask if I would have a drink? Oh. She gently said something like, you know, it's okay if you, if you want to order a glass of wine this week with dinner. You're, you're allowed. And then that night, she did. It felt like this, like, tiny little act of rebellion and humor in the midst of such bleakness. And uh, we talked, joked about it and how funny it was that, and, and like, you know, watching the guy bring the drink and thinking, like, is he having a moral dilemma? Like, does he, like you know, or like, maybe he's thinking maybe it's a tumor, maybe it's not a baby. <laughs> you know, like, and, and so then it was like, do, am I allowed to have another? Am I allowed to have another in public? And then the next day, on December 16th, they gave her the shot that would stop her baby's heart. It works gradually. It's not not an instant thing. So Dr. Hearn told me I might continue to feel some kicks and movement, that that was normal. Then they placed these tiny seaweed sticks, each one about the size of a match, inside her cervix. And that's for many people, and it, and it was for me too, the most painful part, to have these very rough sticks inserted into your cervix. There was a numbing shot, but it's just, it's abrasive in a very, very sensitive place. That day, December 16th,
4: became the most significant day to Margot, More so than Halloween or the day they got the diagnosis.
3: I was sitting in the hotel bed trying to grade some papers cuz I teach at a university and that's what I do. And it was finals and I was trying to get my grades in. And I just felt it was indistinguishable from from her kicks but it was right at the injection site. It was just one of those split second things where you know it was it was late at night and so I I felt this thing and I, I just um it was, you know, for a minute, I thought maybe she, maybe the shot didn't work. And I mean, I just wanted that to be true with an animal intensity. I, I, that my, my whole, I just, of course, I mean, come on. Of course, I wanted her to be alive. And I knew in the same moment, that she almost certainly wasn't, that, you know, it was probably just a, a cramp or a nerve twitch or, or gas, who even knows. Um, and that even if she was still alive, we would just, I would just have to go back to that clinic the next day, and instead of just getting n- new laminaria, they would give me another shot.
4: On the last day of the procedure, when her cervix is ready... Marga was given Pitocin to induce labor. At four centimeters, the doctors gave her the painkiller Demerol, a narcotic that you wouldn't
3: usually give a laboring mother because it could impact a baby's breathing. And they told me it would feel like I'd had about two shots of whiskey. That's exactly what it felt like. It felt like I'd had two shots of whiskey, but, but quickly. Childbirth hurt, but not enough. I wanted it to hurt more. Um... I wanted a kind of physical pain that felt like it would match the intensity of the emotional pain that I was feeling, and i didn't get that Margot was told not to push to let her body do the work. There was some pain as her head crowned um and then I could kind of feel her her shoulders. There was another kind of you know some pain as as i I could feel my body stretching a little bit to let her shoulders passed through me, and then the rest of her body slid out pretty easily because the head and the shoulders are really the, the biggest parts to get through. And, um, and it's a silent room, of course, um, unlike every other depiction of birth that you'll see.
4: Margot decided not to see her hold her baby, a decision she'd think about differently after having her two living children.
3: Stay with us. Can you say
1: advertisements?
0: <laughs>
1: Human nature can get a little messy, but nature nature is powerful enough to save us from ourselves. Seventh Generation Laundry Detergent lifts away tough stains with a 97% bio-based formula for when you think whipping up yellow curry chicken in white pants is a great idea. Totally not speaking from experience. Let nature do its thing so you can feel confident doing yours. That's the power of Seventh Generation. Find Seventh Generation laundry detergent and fresh lavender and other scents at SeventhGeneration.com.
0: <laughs>
3: One of
4: those nights in the hotel in Boulder, Margot was feeling overwhelmed, didn't know where to turn.
3: What do I do when I have a question about anything? I Googled something. What what can the internet tell me about my situation?
4: She Googled, what kind of person has an abortion at 29 weeks? Which led her to an online support group for families who have decided to end a wanted pregnancy. She's now an admin for that group. But in those early days, she'd post questions like,
3: My milk came in. uh, Like, this hurts. Is there anything that makes it stop hurting?
4: And another member Usually someone who's been there, too, would post something like, try putting cabbage
3: leaves in your bra. And even when that didn't help, it still felt good to have this thing to do. So good job. You tried putting cabbage leaves in your bra. Awesome.
4: In the coming years, she'd asked the group a lot of questions. She told them about the night when she and her husband, noticing the absence of a kid, tried going to a dive bar to see a local band.
3: I think there was a bit of us that was like, well... We don't have any kids, so we can still go out and drink. Let's do that. But it sucked. She
4: didn't know why. A commenter posted, maybe there are other things you can do right now to take care of yourself. Another member posted,
3: maybe you've changed. It's like, God, that seems super obvious, but thanks. Yes, I did need to be told that. I did need to be told that maybe my interests have changed with time. And I don't still have to be 21 just because my adulthood plan didn't work out the way I thought it was going to, you know?
4: Margot used that same forum
3: with the biggest question of all, do we try again? The thing that somebody said that felt the most true to me was when you are more afraid of what your life looks like if you don't try than if you do, then, then you'll try. Margot went on to have two healthy kids. One of whom is taking a champion nap right now. Like, she's just, she's, she's still out. In studio snoozing is her baby daughter, who's
4: six going on seven months. And at home is her three-year-old son. Every December 16th, Margot honors her first daughter's memory with these little rituals. She writes to Dr. Hearn's clinic. She posts to the support group. And someday,
3: she plans on involving her living kids. And maybe that'll take the form of baking a cake for her and maybe that'll take the form of writing letters to her and it'll prob and I'll I'll have to explain that I had a baby before they were born and she was so sick in her brain that we had to let her go and that's a really sad unusual thing to have happened but it's also okay that it happened it happens to to not lots of people but some but some people and and you survive it and she you know she She changed who I am. I'm a different parent to them because of it. To understand one of those big ways she's changed, we have to go back to some of the choices she made in Boulder.
4: On that first day, the clinic came to her with all these choices, like whether or not she wanted to receive her daughter's ashes, and if so, pink urn,
3: blue urn, or silver urn. They handed her a whole catalog. Can you imagine being the person who's in charge of the graphic design of that catalog? Like, this is your job today. You are going to design the presentation of urns for baby's ashes. Margot handed it back. We chose not to do any of it. No footprints, no pictures, no blanket, no hat, no urn, no ashes. None. She thought it might be easier this way. Easier on her,
4: easier on her husband. That's also why Margot decided not to hold
3: or see her daughter after birth. I knew if I did it that it would be incredibly emotional and probably, probably powerful in ways that were beautiful. But I also thought that I would just take that memory of her dead body with me forever, and, and I didn't think I wanted it. I think I would choose differently now. But I think I thought I was saving myself some pain and like (laughs) in the fullness of time, that seems so naive and sweet. What a sweet thing for my past self to think I could do for myself is save me some bit of trauma, but it would have been hard. It would have been hard and beautiful and sad and not holding her is hard and beautiful and sad. And it's just, like, there's no way out of it being sad.
4: Over the course of her 29-week pregnancy, Margot had become a parent. She learned how to manage her daughter's medical care, how to make impossible choices on her behalf. She learned about the longing that comes once part of you leaves your body. Margot Finn runs an online support group called Ending a Wanted Pregnancy. We have a list of resources for grieving parents on our website, longashortesttime.com. This episode was produced by me, Andre Salenzi, with Jackie Sajiko. Our editor for this episode is Abigail Keel, Abigail is the behind-the-scenes producer-magician at one of our favorite shows, probably one of yours, Unladylike. Unladylike just wrapped up a season of fun, informative episodes about everything from why it's okay to curse to the feminist power of DIY magazines. Go find it. Our show's creator and executive producer is Hillary Frank. Hillary's new book, Weird Parenting Wins, is out now. Our engineer is Brendan Burns, and our technical director is John DeLore. Our music is performed by HotMoms.gov. We get editorial support from Peter Clowney, Antonia Acatunde, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Rekha Murthy, and Julia Wang. Next time on The Longest Shortest Time, we're going to hear an essay that, in the wake of Me Too, went instantly viral. You can probably tell why just by the title.
3: So I'm going to read my essay, What My Mother and I Don't Talk About.
4: You won't wanna miss this episode. And don't forget about Mother's Day. It's coming up on Sunday, May 12th. We have gifts for mommy love at podswag.com slash LST. Be sure to subscribe to the longest shortest time on Stitcher or wherever you're listening right now. And if you are moved by this episode, there are some organizations out there that help remove financial and logistical barriers to abortions for women. We have links to the National Network of Abortion Funds and the National Abortion Federation hotline on our website, longshortesttime.com.